Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You know, it has been said by historians in the, in the last century, the 20th century, that that was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. When you count all the human life that was lost through, through wars, uh, murder, and different ideologies that went into the last century, it was the bloodiest century ever in the history of man. Uh, world War I. World War I was, was so horrible that it was called the war to end all wars. And if you ask me, I think whoever came up with that was probably a glass half full kind of person. But, of course, it wasn't the war to end all wars. We had World War II and then numerous other wars around the world in the 20th century. Now, on top of that, you had uh, certain nations around the world in, in the last century that were driven also by their ideological beliefs in socialism and communism that motivated them to kill millions of their own citizens or ethnic groups just for the advancement of their own power and utopian dreams. Nazi Germany killed six million Jews in the Holocaust during World War II, and it's estimated that 100 million people died under communistic regimes in the last century. And of course, this century, although there might not be as many uh, global wars happening around the world, we still see the effects of war in this century. As nations continue to rage against one another, our own nation has been at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've witnessed the rise of radical Islam and their grip on the Middle East and in Africa. In early 2000s, the former president of Iran, Iran uh, Ahmad Ahmadinejad, or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, he vowed to wipe America and Israel off the face of the earth. That was his whole plot. And since Israel's emergence, re-emergence as a nation in 1948, up until today, we've continued to see uh, nations plotting against their destruction. And so in this century and in the last one, we have seen the nations plot and rage against each other in a way like no other time in world history. And so with all that, we've, we've, what we've learned about the nations in the last century and about human history in general, uh, with all this information that we know about the last century and human history in general, I think all of us at one time or another have, have asked the question, why do the nations rage? Why do they rage against each other? And, you know, why does this happen? Why so much war? And then there's the follow-up question to that question, which is, when or will there ever be peace upon the earth? And we wonder, you know, is that really possible? Well, I believe... The Bible, God's Word, answers those questions. The opening question I asked a minute ago, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, is really not a unique question to me. It is a question that, that comes from the first verse 
of Psalm 2. And it is a question that's written by King David. And the reason we know that David wrote this uh, particular psalm is because the Gospel of Luke gives him the credit for it in Luke's book of Acts. Psalm 2 is the psalm that we're going to be focusing on today. So if you have your Bibles uh, near you, please open it up to, to Psalm 2. And we'll be spending some time uh, there walking through that passage today, as well as going through uh, a number of other passages. So, I, and just a heads up, I'm going to be using a lot of cross-references today to help explain what Psalm 2 is teaching. Um, so, you might just want to jot the reference down or get it on your outline and, and look it up at another time, just, but um, just forewarning you on that. And the reason for that is because God's Word is going to explain so much of this much better than I can uh, in my own mind and, and strength. So, um, but back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is basically a psalm that is prophetic in nature, and, and the theme of this prophecy is messianic. In other words, it's a psalm that points to a Messiah, a king, who is appointed by God to rule. And this king is appointed by God to rule and reign the world, to rule and reign the world in, in righteousness, to bring about peace and justice to the earth, and he will bring those things about someday by destroying the enemies of God. And so what I want to focus on today from Psalm 2 is looking at its prophetic nature as the, as the prophecies of the Messiah written about in this psalm are fulfilled in Jesus. The Apostle John wrote in John 19, or not in John, but the Apostle John wrote in Revelation 19, verse 10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So some of these verses that we'll be looking at today, Jesus is already filled or has already fulfilled in his first coming. But we'll also see, looking at stuff here in Psalm 2, that he has yet to fulfill some of the messianic expectations of this psalm. The New Testament expectation is that Jesus will fulfill all the messianic prophecies about himself at his second coming. So what I want you to see today as we walk through this psalm together is is I want you to see Jesus fulfilling God's plan for the world. And, and to do that, we'll be looking throughout God's Word. Again, like I made mention a few minutes ago. And we're going to be looking at both the Old and New, some Old and New Testament passages to see how Jesus truly is God's anointed King, the Messiah, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So take with... Uh, so look at... Psalm 2-1 with me. Let's look at this together. I just want to read it again, even though I've said it a couple times already. But David pens this in, in verse 1 of Psalm 2. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, what I want you to notice about that opening question is that it's, it's a two-part question. The first part is about why are the nations raging? Why are they angry or restless, as it says in the Hebrew? Continually restless. And, and the second part is, what are they plotting about? 
And what I want you to notice about David's big opening question there in verse 1 is that the nation's rage and the people's plot, it's a unified plot. In other words, the nations are raging, they're restless, and they're plotting together. They're in an uproar over the same thing. And they conspire and plot together to solve their supposed problem. So what are the nations raging about? And what are the peoples coming together, conspiring and plotting together on? Well, David gives us the answer there in in verses 2 and 3 as to what specifically the nations are are plotting about and that they're so upset about. He writes this in verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the reason, the reason the nations are raging and plotting together is because they oppose the Lord and his anointed. The text says that the kings of the earth, they set themselves against the Lord, like they are just totally against him, and they're against his anointed. In other words, these nations and rulers are set, they are fixed on trying to disrupt and thwart the plan of God. And they are motivated to do this really because they have no love for God. And like I said a few minutes ago, this psalm is prophetic in nature, and in the, in the book of Acts, Luke's, Luke writes that in the early church of Jerusalem, not long after Christ departed from Jerusalem, uh, Peter and John, they, they go out and they're, they're spreading the gospel in the city of Jerusalem. They get caught, put in prison, then they are released from prison, and their friends had been praying for them that they would get released from prison, and when they find out that Peter and John are set free and they, and they come back and they, they worship together. When they get together as a church, they worship together of what God had done for them on their behalf. And they look and actually sing the first couple verses here of Psalm 2 together because they see that Jesus has fulfilled these first couple verses in, Psalms, in Psalm 2. Luke wrote this in Acts 4, 27 and 28. He said, for truly in this, or this is, um, this is what the, pe- the people of the church are saying together, but Luke records it, and he says, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Luke is telling us that in Jesus' first coming, the early church in Jerusalem used these first two verses of Psalm 2 to explain Jesus' crucifixion. The Gentiles were, were represented by Pontius Pilate, representing the Gentile uh, nation of, of Rome and as he was their governor. And then you had the rulers of the people of Israel. Herod Antipas was the king, and you had the, the, the religious leaders uh, surrounding him. And and all these groups together were conspiring against the Lord and and against his Messiah. But their plot was in vain. 
Why? Because one, it didn't have the effect that they hope it would. They were trying to put this down, snuff this out. No Jesus, we don't want his followers or anything. Well, that didn't work. The resurrection proved that that didn't work because people continually were changed by the power of the gospel and the church continued to expand and grow in number as Jesus promised it would. He said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And secondly, because um, in Jesus himself, God's eternal kingdom plan for the world came to pass. In other words, it was inaugurated at his resurrection. So Luke 4 tells us that the early church looked to Jesus fulfilling these first two verses of Psalm 2. But interestingly, they didn't include verse 3. So verse 3 was not fulfilled in Jesus' first coming because he didn't actually establish an earthly kingdom. So taking all of these three verses together here at the opening of Psalm 2, we would say that these verses are partially fulfilled because verse 3 is looking to a time when the nations are looking to throw off the rule of God and his Messiah. Now today, in our world, our world is more and more opposed to the Judeo-Christian worldview. And we, we see this more and more in our own nation as our nation becomes increasingly secular and leans more and more, it seems, to an atheistic, relativistic society where God and objective moral values are denied and instead are replaced by individual people defining what moral meaning and values should or should not be. But is this what really David is getting at here? Is this really what he is driving at as far as throwing off God and the Messiah, the influence of, of, the, of the two of them? Well, the short answer is, is no. As much as we see and hear of increasing hostilities in our world against those who possess or affirm the Judeo-Christian worldview, David is not so much talking about the world being opposed to a particular worldview. He is, he is talking about the nations seeking to overthrow the rule of God and his Messiah. So there's still a future component here to this psalm that has yet to be fulfilled. A time is coming in the future when, again, the nations will conspire and plot together in direct opposition to God, seeking to break apart the strong relationship between God and his Messiah. And they seem to believe that they can achieve their goal. And as it says earlier, it says that they are set on doing this. I think that's a key word there in, in that section. And so man, of course, when we think about everything in the Bible and how human history has gone, man has consistently been opposed to the rule of God going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When, Gar when, when Adam and Eve were, were deceived by, by Satan, who is the adversary of God and the adversary of God's people, because ever since sin entered the human heart, man has been in rebellion against God, continually seeking to bring about their own desires seeking their own glory 
rather than submitting to what God desires and giving him glory. And this pattern of man's rebellion against God is going to continue up until the return of Christ. And when you read Revelations chapters 16 and 19, just before Christ returns, those passages show you that the world will gather their forces together under the influence of Satan, the Antichrist who is motivated uh, and empowered by Satan, and then the Antichrist false prophet. Some people refer to these three together as the unholy trinity, and they try to stop Christ's kingdom from coming to earth. They are set on doing that. They think they can achieve that. They gather together in the land of Israel, around the plain or in the plain of Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon. But God looks up from heaven. He he sees all of man's plans all the time. And he sees all of man's plans against him. He knows the direction that they're going to go. He sees the direction they're going. He looks down from heaven. He looks down at their plots. They're conspiring together, and he laughs. And this laughter is a laughter of, of ridicule. In essence, God is mockingly laughing at the kind of things that are going on on the earth that man thinks he can do, that man thinks he can supersede and thwart the plan of God and God's love for his anointed, the Messiah. So that takes us to verses 4 to 6 there in the next part of Psalm 2. And it says this in verses 4 to 6. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This speaks of a time when when God in his wrath will judge the kingdoms of the world and restore his king, bring about his king, his Messiah, on Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the temple mount of Jerusalem. That is where Solomon built his temple upon the temple mount in Jerusalem over Mount Zion. And so it's a reference to the temple mount in Jerusalem. And the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation records in detail the unfolding of God's wrath upon the world, which will come in the last seven years of the tribulation period. And the tribulation is, if you don't know what that is, it's the last seven years of world history before the return of Christ. And the tribulation is a period of time on earth when the nations are of this world are united against God, they're united against God's uh, people, against his chosen ones, uh, they're living in open rebellion against him. They're worshiping the Antichrist they are, um, who is empowered by Satan. And the book of Revelation records the details of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth in the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. And once that last bold judgment is poured out upon the earth in year seven of the, of the tribulation, Jesus returns in his glory, to defeat the kingdoms of the world at the battle of Armageddon. And he defeats all the enemies of God, 
And then after that, he proceeds to set up his kingdom from Jerusalem. So when God says here in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is saying that he has purposed Jerusalem to be the designated place for his king and his kingdom rule. Psalm 132, 13 to 4, or 13 to 14 says this. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I think it's interesting that just as the kings of the the world are set against God and his Messiah, they're set against his plans, um, God says here that he is set. His way and his plan is firmly fixed, and it can't be stopped by anyone. Really, God's redemptive kingdom plan for the world began in the person of Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God came to Abraham and made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. God promised to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, that he would bless those who who bless Abraham's descendants, and then he would curse those who cursed Abraham's descendants. And then the really amazing thing here is that through Abraham's offspring, through his lineage, all the families of the earth would be blessed. I mean, that is an amazing blessing, an amazing promise. And then God extended that promise through Abraham's line on down to Isaac, Abraham's son, and then from Isaac on to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when Jacob was living in the land of Egypt before the Exodus account, before all of God's people were uh, multiplied a whole bunch living in the land of, of Goshen in Egypt, there's a, Jacob and his 12 sons lived there, and Jacob is about to die. And in Genesis 49, 10, it records Jacob's blessing to his son Judah. And he gave this blessing to, to Judah just before he died, and he promised that the future kings of Israel would come through the line of Judah. And he also promised that not only would kings come from that line, but there would be a particular king in the line of Judah who all the nations would obey, that they would listen to and follow his rule and his commands. Genesis 49.10, here's what it says. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So God's promise to make Israel into a nation, that came true, as did Jacob's prophecy about a future kingly line coming through the line of Judah, and that first king from the line of Judah to be king of Israel was King David. And so King David fulfills that promise and prophecy that Jacob made to his son. So then, 
as history moves on, David himself is given an, an offer that he can't refuse by God. God gives him an offer he can't refuse. And he, God comes to David and gives him an amazing promise and blessing in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. It says this, it says that, and your house, meaning David, his lineage, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God entered into an, an everlasting covenant with David, and the covenant promise was that one of David's descendants would sit on Israel's throne and his kingdom would be established by God forever. And then after that time, after David goes away from, when he passes away, years go by, and then God raises up the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah probably has more to say about the Messiah than any other prophetic uh, writer of Scripture. But there's one that we're pretty familiar with, and we talk about it annually in our churches usually, or maybe you put it on a postcard uh, with all your family pictures, but it's Isaiah 9-6. But I'm going to include Isaiah 9-6 and 7, which talks about Jesus' coming kingdom and what it will look like. And so Isaiah says this, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, there are a few things I just want to point out here about what Isaiah writes in those verses from Isaiah chapter 9. One is that this coming king, this human descendant of David, this Messiah would be both human and and divine. Jesus fulfills that requirement, proving himself to be both human and divine when he was raised from the dead. Second, his government is expansive, bringing about peace, justice, and righteousness forever. And Jesus, he didn't bring that about, um, not on the earth, not into the world when he was here the first time. But this is a promise, which means it has yet to be fulfilled. But thirdly, the thing I want to point out is that God is saying that this is his plan. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, God's plan, like it said earlier in Psalm 2, it cannot be stopped. No matter how much mankind tries to get in the way of it and disrupt it. God plans to have his Messiah, Jesus, establish God's kingdom rule upon the earth, which is further explained here in Psalm 2. So let's look at verses 7 to 9 to see what it says about this Messiah, that Jesus coming to rule on the earth. It says here in verse 7, I, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Some translations, which I think is a better translation, says you shall rule them with a rod of iron. Um, Just so you know, Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And you'll find a number of those quotes in the New Testament, uh, quoting from Psalm 2, are coming from this section of the psalm right here, from these three verses. And so the New Testament authors understood Jesus fulfilling these verses. For instance, all the gospel writers show that they show Jesus to be God's son. Now, he was, Jesus was God's son, not in the sense of Jesus being created by God, but he was God's specially appointed man to bring about God's special plan. Jesus has always been and always will be the son of God as he exists eternally. He, he is an eternal being. He is God. And so even before Jesus enters the world's stage, he was the Son of God, as Jesus is equally one with God. But on earth, Jesus was shown to be God's specially anointed Son, the Messiah, at his baptism. That's one of the examples of his sonship is at his baptism. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record Jesus' baptism, and they're all virtually very similar in, in, in how they say what I'm about to read, but they all pretty much use the same language to describe Jesus as God's son. Luke, I like how Luke puts it in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, says this. He says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus was also shown to be God's specially anointed Son, the Messiah, at his transfiguration with just a select few of his disciples. And again, from the Gospel of Luke, verse 9 35 says this, it says, And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The Gospel of John didn't record Jesus' baptism or, or transfiguration, but he still understood Jesus to be the Son of God. And one of those examples that he wrote uh, can be found in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word being Jesus, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Some of those translations for verse 14 say the only begotten from God or from the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, in John 3.16, it talks about, in some translations, it says Jesus being the only begotten Son, And so John was familiar with Jesus being the Son of God, the unique one, the specially appointed one by God, his Messiah. 
So not only did God reveal Jesus to be his specially anointed son at his baptism and at his, at his transfiguration, but also the apostle Paul says in the book of Acts that Jesus' resurrection was another proof, another de- physical demonstration and proof of, God, of Jesus being God's son, of being God's Messiah. So in Acts 13, 32, 33, again, Luke writes the book of Acts, but he records this sermon here that Paul is giving. He's giving an evangelistic sermon, and he says this related. He quotes Psalm 2 uh, in the midst of his sermon, and he says this in verses 32 and, and 33 of Luke chapter 13. It says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so that quotation from Psalm 2-7, the author of Hebrews uses it as well, but he uses it in a little bit different way. So he's taking the same verse from Psalm 2-7, but applying it in a different way, but again, applying it to Jesus. And he's basically applying it to Jesus, fulfilling the office and the role of the priest. So he's fulfilling the priestly office for God. Jesus is fulfilling the priestly office for God. And Hebrews 5.5 says it this way. It says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the author of Hebrews is is using Psalm 2-7 to claim that Jesus is not only God's appointed king, but he's also God's appointed priest. And this is pretty, pretty interesting because it's basically showing that God's offices of king and priest are, are merged in the person of Jesus. So Jesus' kingdom is seen as a theocratic kingdom as he begins the rule of God in its government, as he brings about the rule of God in its government and religious form. Now, the, the size and the scope of Jesus' kingdom rule is, is not just limited to the geography of Israel, but the Bible promises that it will fill the whole earth. Psalm 72, 8 says this. It says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophet Daniel also confirms this. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel's having a vision while he's in the land of Babylon, and he wrote this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when will this kingdom come about? When will God hand over the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? When will he come to rule with a rod of iron and dash God's enemies into pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Well, the answer to those questions are found in in Daniel 7 and in Revelation chapter 19. Daniel uh, 7, 25 to 27, says this. He says, Daniel writes, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So what's Daniel talking about? a lot of information. Well, he's speaking there of the last three and a half years of the tribulation period that will come upon the earth in the end times just before Jesus' second coming. Daniel is speaking about the global rule of the nations with their figurehead at the head of it, the Antichrist, and how his kingdom will be shattered. It will be taken away. It will be a very short reign. It will be taken away and be supplanted by the everlasting rule of Christ and his saints. This is further supported by the book of Revelation in Revelation 19, 11 to 17. It records Jesus' second coming to destroy the enemies of God while all these nations that I was telling you about earlier are gathered together at the battle of Armageddon where all the enemies of God are, all the armies of God are All the enemies of God and all the armies of the world are united together against God, trying to prevent him from coming and taking over the earth. They think they can stop this. And they're gathered together in Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon. And then John, in his vision, writes this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The white horse was a conquering horse in the Roman world, a victorious horse, So automatically, when the gates are opened, victory is being declared here. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, which are kingly crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And here's a key word or phrase. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, or he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus possesses so much authority and power that Psalm 2 concludes with a warning to the kings and rulers of the earth. Look back at Psalm 2 with me and we'll finish out this last section here. Verses 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So to take Jesus seriously, you need to take his gospel seriously as well. To, to treat Jesus in a serious way, to fear him is to act with wisdom. That's what the Bible says. That's how it puts it. It's to act wisely. It's to do the right thing. And the Bible makes it clear, as, as does Jesus himself, that to reject him has eternal consequences. And Jesus said in, in John 3, 35 to 36, that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what makes Jesus worthy to be judge of the world and to receive the kingdoms of the earth? Well, Revelation 5, 9, and 10, I, I, this is a verse I've come to love. It, it says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, this is a reference to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Seals are the judgments of God, the unfolding of God's plan for the future, for the tribulation period, and for his coming reign. And it says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And then there's a promise here, they shall and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus is worthy to have all authority given to him on heaven and on earth because he is God's son. He is God's Messiah, born of the line of David. Yet he is without sin, who accomplishes the Father's plan for redemption. In Jesus' first coming, he came to die as a sacrifice for sin. And in his second coming, he comes to judge and receive the kingdom God will give him. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. The Bible promises that the nations will continue to plot against God and his Messiah, seeking to throw off his rule and reign, foolishly thinking that they can defeat him or somehow get rid of him. But the Bible makes it clear that Jesus will return, he'll put down the enemies of God, and the kingdoms of the world will be shattered. And the way to escape this coming wrath and judgment that is coming is to be wise, to, to honor him, to obey his words by turning to him, to confess your sins to him, to put your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and committing your life to live under his lordship. This is how God becomes your refuge from the wrath of God. It's by receiving Jesus. If you have received Jesus, then you know God as your refuge. So as the days get crazier 
and crazier, which it seems like they always are right now, because he is your refuge, you can trust and rest that he has you eternally in his hand. He has you secure in his hand. And you can look forward to his return, and you should look forward to his return when he brings about what no other, what no other earthly king can bring about. And it is something that cannot be stopped as well because God's plan is set on this. And it's to bring about Jesus' kingdom of true righteousness, true justice, and true peace.